following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I was recently having a conversation with somebody about the kind of rapid advancement of technology and how this was an older gentleman who was around probably the age of 70 and so he had seen kind of this advancement of technology from the mid-50s to where we are now and it reminded me of this video that I came across which um, was probably late 1960s where um, a reporter was sitting down with a father and son in one of those warehouses at the time that contained one computer and sat with the, with the father and son and said that, you know, many scientists believe, many, many uh, engineers believe that in a short period of time, this computer that fills the room now will be able to be contained on the top of a desk. And the, the son and the father were kind of staring in disbelief like that would ever be a possibility. And the, 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 the reality is that it is more than a possibility. We've come to a, a time where we ha can have computers in our pockets. But it takes some ability to look into the future when we're told of something, to believe something is true. It takes a certain amount of, of faith, and that's, that's a worldly example. But our desire, our impulse, as maybe in a, in a secular age, is, to, is the desire to see things first before we accept them. We are like Doubting Thomas in, in John chapter 20 where he says, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. But we are called to faith. Romans chapter 10 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the main point in this text is that the promises of God are to be, to be received by faith, not sight. There's a transition point here in this chapter in verse 10 where we are told that Jacob has departed from Beersheba on his way to Haran. In this part of Genesis, Beersheba is, is to the south of Jerusalem is where he is leaving his father Isaac and his rivalry with Esau. He's actually, in a sense, going back to where his grandfather, Abraham, had come from, to Haran. And there's this connection kind of between the past and the future. And it's on this journey that he has this dream. It is on the way between his past and his future where God speaks to him, where God meets him. And so first he has this dream. He lays down, and we are told he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Before we look at what the Lord says, we first have to make this point that this dream, in this dream, there's a bridging of the gap between heaven and earth. And what's intended by this phrase, this phrase, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, is that there's this gap that has been bridged. And it alludes to man's sinful effort, even at the Tower of Babel, to reach up to God. This is in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, where they, mankind has come together and they said, 
Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. But this is not the same thing. This is not the same thing that is going on at the Tower of Babel. Since the fall in Genesis 3, it has been man's desire to reach God. Not for God's glory, not to serve Him, but for man's own glory, for man's glory. That is why verse 4 of chapter 11 continues where man says, And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But it is at the Tower of Babel that God does scatter man. It's actually in His mercy that He does so, knowing that man's selfish and haughty ambition would only lead to his demise. So in contrast here, in this passage, we have a ladder, a bridge, opened up between heaven and earth. And the difference is that the angels of God are ascending and descending upon it. It is not a man-made structure. It is an angelic highway, a heavenly structure. And angels we see in Scripture throughout are represented as God's messengers. And so they are going up and down on this bridge, on this ladder. And so there's an open bridge. It's not just for spectacle, but for the proclamation of God's word. A bridge has opened up between heaven and earth for the purpose of proclaiming God's word. And look at, in verse 16, how, how Jacob responds upon waking up from his dream. He says, or it says, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What Jacob saw and what was illustrated for him and heard was God's word as being the connection between heaven and earth. And curiously for him, there was a certain amount of terror that came with that dream. He woke up afraid. And this points to Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of God and who is the true bridge between heaven and earth, between God and man. And Christ's church is to proclaim his gospel and is in this that we can say that we come weekly to the house of God, to the very gates of heaven. As the gathered assembly of God's church, we are in the presence of God, in the house of God. And as I said in the dream, the angels of God are ascending and, de and descending. The word is coming down from heaven, but it's also returning. The word of God goes forth like the rain, but it does not return void. It accomplishes what it set out to do. We see this literally in Jesus Christ, who is called the word. He was sent from heaven, born of a virgin. And he accomplished what he was set out to do. He did not return to, to heaven saying to God, the Father, sorry, I couldn't get it done. He, he, on the cross, said, it is finished. And so Jacob's ladder is a picture of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplishing what he was set out to do. And so now we have come to God through Christ by faith. Through Jesus, we have access to the throne room of God. And when we gathered, as we are gathered this morning, do we have that perspective? Do we believe that we stand at the very gates of heaven, hearing the word of God, proclaimed salvation, proclaimed to us? Do you believe that God is here in our midst? If not, we must awake from our spiritual slumber, as Jacob did, and say, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is a reality that we must be aware of. 
when we gather for worship. We must be cognizant of it, that God is with us now, here as we are gathered. As we believe this, this would change how we worship, how we see God's glory. The God of the universe, the Holy One of Israel, is here that we might worship Him more heartily, less concerned with what others think, and more with what He thinks. This would change how we think of even inviting our neighbors and our friends, our co-workers. Instead of inviting them to come meet our friends at church, come to be a part of a community, we would be inviting them to come and meet the living God. As we read from the New Testament in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it describes this encounter that we have every morning, which I'll read a, a little section of that again in verse 22 of chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And you might say, you hear that, and you're, you might say, you're, you're telling me that is what is going on when we gather for worship. Then why am I yawning? Why are people falling asleep? Why aren't more people flocking to the church if that's the reality? It's because the world wants to live by sight, not by faith. We have to see these things not with our physical eyes, but our eyes of faith. And that is why God speaks to Jacob. He speaks words of promise that aren't to be believed by what Jacob sees, but to be believed by faith. And so the Lord gives us unconditional promises here in this passage. The point of the dream, the dream does not end with Jacob seeing this, this wonderful picture of, of a ladder, and then he goes on his way. But God speaks. That is, why, that is what we are meant to be drawn to. He stands above the ladder. He is standing above it and speaking. These words from the Lord are ones who have, we have continually heard throughout, throughout the book of Genesis, and they solidify the covenant blessing that Jacob has just received from his father Isaac before he left from Beersheba. The Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. This is the covenantal language that the Lord uses throughout the book of Genesis because God made the, these promises to these former patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac. And then he promises, promises him once again the land that he is standing upon or sleeping upon, the land of Canaan. He promises him descendants before he's even married. These descendants are promised to him, highlighting the future aspect of this promise. And then he says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. These are the promises that God has made to Jacob. I think what's important for us to see is that these promises are made to us his people, the patriarchs, as we read about them in the Old Testament, are representatives of the people of God. So they're made to them, but they're made to all of the people of God, not just these single men. But there's a, that is why we, we say there's a progression and an unfolding of the covenant people. We see it first with Abraham, this one family, and his son Isaac. And then Isaac has his son Jacob. And then it goes to 12 sons of Jacob, 
which expand to, to, to 12 tribes, and then it's a united kingdom of Israel. And then with the advent of Christ, the promises of God go out to the Gentiles, to all the nations of the earth. And it's revealed that the people of God are those who have by, by faith received salvation that was won for them by Jesus. And so there is this unfolding of the covenant of, the, of grace. And so it is that we are in these last days, as the Bible tells us, that we are part of the church invisible, made up of all believers from the beginning of time to now, and will include believers who have yet to be born. And so these promises are made to you, Christian. And we are to take them as our comfort. God has promised to be with us. He has said here in this passage, I am with you. He has promised to keep us wherever we go. He has promised to, he has promised to bring us back to the promised land, which is not Israel or Palestine, but ultimately is the heavenly Jerusalem, which we read about in Hebrews 12, our heavenly home. God has promised his people that he will get every single one of them back home to a heavenly country. As Hebrews 11 actually tells us, they, those who died in faith, were seeking a better country, a heavenly one, which the earthly promised land only pointed to. And so God is the God of the covenant of grace. And as baptized members of the covenant, we have the privileges of these promises, but they must be received not by sight, but by faith. Do you believe these promises to be true for you individually? Do you trust God despite your circumstances? Even in the midst of hard suffering or trials, we are to look to Christ, the Son of God, given to sinners like you and I. Right, this is the logic of Romans 8. If God has given us His own Son, His only Son, how will He not freely give us all things? Jesus is the assurance of the Father's promises, and so we are to look to Him by faith. Which we see in this passage is exactly what Jacob did, right? Well, not, not exactly. After receiving these promises, he did not believe them Entirely, but he continued with a bargain with God. Jacob thinks, in, in, in some senses, he's on a hot streak. He's just stolen the blessing and the birthright from his brother Esau. Now he's been sent to go get a wife. He's free from his family, his brother's anger. And so surely he can set up some, some deal with God where he is the one who comes out on front. And think of Jacob's response in comparison to his grandfather Abraham after God gave these same promises to Abraham in Genesis 15. After the promises were given to Abraham, Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is faith, trusting in God's word as it is delivered to us. What we are called to do as well, hearing and receiving the word of God. But Jacob does not do that. In verse 20, Jacob made a vow, a promise of his own, a conditional promise, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This is not faith. This is conditional trust. It is a if-then formula. If you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. You notice God does not have conditions alongside his promises. All that is required of us in the covenant of grace 
where God has extended all these promises, all that is required of us is repentance and faith. To believe that they are true, that is all. Jacob is asking for food and clothing. He is the used car salesman, always seeking the best deal for himself. His relationship at this point with God is transactional. If he receives what he wants in the deal, then he will give what God wants. But we all, we all do this. We all attempt to do this. We all attempt to bargain with God with our lives. And that is why John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. This is the idolatry formula. I will serve this idol as long as I get what I want in return. And this is the if-then formula. This always, though, ends in enslavement. We think, as long as my life is going well and God does not cause me pain, then I'll show up on Sundays. I'll serve in his church. But we're not really serving the Lord. We are serving comfort. Or we might say, as long as I have enough in the bank account, I'll tithe. I'll be generous. I'll give of, from my money. But we're really not serving the Lord. We're serving money. Or if, God, you give me a good house where I have enough space, I'll be hospitable. I'll be open to strangers. But really, we are serving material goods and maybe even status. But these are all approaches to God, not only of pride and idolatry, but of sight. And that's why I say it's transactional. Right? When you go to a grocery store, you can't walk out with the groceries without paying. You must show them the money and give the money. Then you will receive. So we are saying to God, show me the goods first, and then I'll pay with my service. Then I'll serve you. Then I'll give of my life to you. But this is not what God has called us to. He has called us to a life of faith. We are to receive the promises of God through faith. And so we walk by faith, trusting God, serving God, not for what we can get out of him, but because in Christ, God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.